HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by The Barter House. When you open the bottle and you drink the wine, it speaks for itself. Is it, you know, a wine that's made for food? Yes. Those types of wines are tend to be more rustic or have a little bit more body. Are there wines that are just pure out hedonistic pleasure? Sure, there's wines like that that maybe from California that are more cocktail wines or wines that are just big jammy fruit bombs. And those, I think, appeal to a certain group, group of people as well. I think the wines that Barterhouse specializes in is more of these food-friendly you know, rustic style, um, biodynamic, organic wines that tend to be a bit more earthy, come from someplace. So you can almost taste the terroir. You can almost feel this guy, this Sancerra was grown in this slaty, rocky soil. And so to me, that's the exciting part that the wine feels like it comes from someplace. Hello and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network. And this morning I had my usual routine. I woke up and ran right to the coffee pot and had my cup of coffee. When that was finished, I had my second cup of coffee. Yeah, it takes me two cups of coffee every morning just to get going. And I'm not, I'm not alone out there. Uh, in fact, you see, it, it seems to be almost like a security blanket with people these days. They're either walking around holding a bottle of water or a cup of coffee uh, with all the coffee bars out. And, and um, need we mention Starbucks, of course. Everyone has access to coffee. And there's no doubt that the caffeine really does wake you up and get you going in the day. But how much caffeine is always the question. Caffeine has really come under fire for many years. And the New York Times ran an article just last week uh, by Murray Carpenter. And it was basically stating the title of it was, A Century Later, The Jury's Still Out on Caffeine Limits. And that is due in part to all these energy drinks that are out. Red Bull, Nose, um, oh, heaven knows there's all this, you know, uh, fancy names that let people know exactly what these drinks are doing. And it's going to give them a boost. The problem comes with how much caffeine there is in them um, because it has effects on blood pressure, certainly, and on sleep and um, maybe other harmful side effects. But again, the jury's still out. 
And it's not new. This was this is an issue that has been going on for a long time. In fact, the first, I guess, um, case I don't know if it was a lawsuit or just a you know a federal case about setting limits was in 1911, and that was against none other than the Coca Cola Company because they were stating that the the additives of caffeine were just too high. I think at that time they said it was about 80 milligrams per serving, which is the same amount as today's um, modern bull, uh, modern drink, the Red Bull, which has 80 milligrams per serving. And supposedly the current levels of, of caffeine are much lower in Coca-Cola, but the Nothing ever happened with that. Nothing ever came of that trial because they didn't have enough time to put together a real study. And and what's the study going to show? Of course, the study is going to show that some people, you know, everyone reacts differently to caffeine. And I, for one, like it. Uh, And I don't don't have too many harmful effects from it. And people know if they have harmful effects from it, they just don't drink it. But the question still remains, how much caffeine is too much? And is it different when it's added to soft drinks as as opposed to, you know, just a natural constituent of coffee where, you know, the, where it's extracted from? Is it habit-forming, habit and should it be marketed to youths? I mean, that's my major concern with these energy drinks is, is the effect that it will have on young people. And, and of course, then there's that, you know, that big question I just mentioned, is it habit-forming? Coca-Cola, interestingly enough, had other battles and issues, too. People claiming that it had um, high, you know, too high levels of cocaine, which, in fact, it had trace amounts. But um, when the caffeine became an issue, that's when I think people all started to sit up and take note. But everyone loved a Coke. And it became, there's no, you know, no one can doubt the fact that Coca-Cola is an American icon, uh, both in its symbols and in its uh, product, and and it has a very, very interesting past. In fact, that past is coming up in May, their 125th anniversary. So I thought, how appropriate. Let's do a little talk with the, all these caffeine drinks, but Coke now is the, is the good guy out of the group. And it has such a wonderful, colorful, yes, but interesting history that when we come back after a short break, we're going to talk to an archivist from Coca-Cola Company, from the Coca-Cola Heritage Communications team, and we're going to hear more about the history of Coca-Cola. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with Coca-Cola, the real thing. Coca-Cola is everything. It's uh, from the 
writing the script of its name to the color of its label to the songs and advertisements. Everyone knows Coke. And as I said, we can't, we can't deny that it is indeed an American icon. And we, I'm very happy to have with us Jamal Booker from the Coca-Cola Company. Welcome, Jamal. Thank you very much. Uh, Jamal is an archivist, and he is the man who knows the history and can talk to us all about the heritage and history of Coca-Cola. And for, you know, a lot of books have been written about Coke. A lot of uh, research has been done. Everyone wants the scoop because, of course, number one, before we go anywhere else, everyone knows that most people know that the formula, the secret formula for Coca-Cola is still a secret formula, and it's heavily guarded, Correct. That is correct. <laughs> and I'm not going to get it out of you, right? <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> what people don't know, Jamal, I think, is is the beginnings of Coca-Cola, how it came to be. I mean, so many people, especially, you know, today's generations, it's always been on the shelves. Forget soda fountain dispensers. It's just always been on the supermarket shelves whenever they go out to restaurants and cafes. Coke is there. But... It wasn't always so, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the begin, the very beginnings of Coke? Absolutely, absolutely. Coke is always there today, but there was a lot that uh, it took to actually get there. Um, Coke was born 125 years ago, right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. And I, I failed to mention that Jamal is talking to us from Atlanta, Georgia. How appropriate um, from the Coca-Cola Company, and that's and there they are, still in Atlanta. That is mm-hmm. correct. Uh, on May 8th, 1886, uh, a local pharmacist named John Pemberton, who was here in Atlanta, produced a Coca-Cola syrup. And uh, what he did was take that, he took that syrup down to a local well-known pharmacy, which was Jacob's Pharmacy. Jacob's Pharmacy. <laughs> mixed it with uh, carbonated water, served it, and people took a liking to it. The rest is history, so they say, right? <laughs> the rest is pretty much history. Yeah. So they well, started. now, is it true that, um, the, that initially the elixir, if you want to call it, was um, sort of a a medicinal cure, a tonic, if you will, to make you feel better, and flavored with wine? No. That's actually one of the many folklores that a lot of people will hear about Coke. It's always been a soft drink uh, since day one. Mm. Never intended to be a medicinal product. Um, What you'd find is in a lot of our early advertising, Mm -hmm. you see different, you know, things about the product, like relieves fatigue, only because it was sold in pharmacies. So John Pemberton was a pharmacist, and it was always a soft drink, but because it was sold in pharmacies, the kind of advertising you had to use, you know, had some of those claims. I see. Well, when was the caffeine added to it? Well, we again, we don't talk about the formulation of our products, but uh, since day one, it's always been a soft drink. Okay, um, but so the so the some of the ephemera that from the early period that talks about the wine cola uh, was it sweetened with wine before the before a syrup? I mean, because these there are these labels are these not part of the Coca Cola Company or? Oh no, uh, the beverage Coca Cola is. Mm-hmm. A different product. Uh, the John Pemberton actually had lots of products. So you know he was an inventor, a pharmacist. Coca Cola is not the French wine Coca. That's another uh, folklore that people often get confused. But Coca Cola is a totally cert, uh, separate beverage. Okay, and is it? It's still made exactly the same way today as it was in nineteen or eighteen eighty six. 
our, our formula has never changed. You wow. actually may be familiar with the one time we tried to change the formula, yes, new <laughs> which Coke, was uh, right? new Coke. Uh, lasted for about seventy nine days, and we brought it back <laughs> to the original formula, which was what people know and love. But well, it's absolutely. always been the same, yeah. other than that moment. Well, I am. To- I have to admit and confess that I am totally addicted to Diet Coke, um, <laughs> as and I loved Coke as a kid. Um, so it, I. I understand people's uh, uh, consternation when, you know, they couldn't get the real, the, the, the real thing. <laughs> the real thing. Right. And uh, many have tried to crack the code, but uh, there's only one real thing. Yeah. Well, now, there are, as I mentioned in my introduction, several people have done research and written books to try to, as you say, crack the code. And one, I think, uh, Mark Pendergrass, one of the authors, thought that perhaps he found a formula written on a piece of paper in an old chest someplace, and that that is not so, huh? Yeah, you know, it's it's really not rare that people come to us with, you know, something that they think is the formula for Coke. We actually, at least once a year, get someone who thinks they've discovered the, the uh, formula, but the formula really is much more than a list of ingredients. The formula is the mystique around it. You know, everyone really wants to get to the heart of the formula. Um, it's a secret, so we don't talk much about it, but uh, it has not been cracked yet. Hmm. And what I was um, very impressed with was the the care. I mean, we hear we, you know, a lot of talk about McDonald's and McDonald's University to train people so that there's there is consistency no matter where you go. And Coca-Cola is very much the same, actually, obviously, the precursor to, to that consistency that McDonald's has. Um, and that the the only thing that is, I mean, there are different bottling companies everywhere, but the syrup is only made in one place. And now, is that correct? Well, again... Or do, it, by the same, same formula. Yeah. So that every everywhere you go in the world, if you get a Coca-Cola, it's going to taste the same. We have quality control people everywhere within the company that, you know, go to the different locations around the world and make sure that a Coke, is a Coke, is a Coke. So mm-hmm. whether you're in India, China, Brazil, right here in Atlanta, a Coke is going to taste the same wherever you go. We've been very big on quality. It's been a piece of our advertising uh, for years. So wherever you go, Coke is going to taste the same. Well, I think that's rather impressive, too, because when it first, when Coke first came out, I think in the first year it sold, what, about nine drinks a day or something uh, that, the first that was years. on average nine drinks a day and a nickel a piece a nickel a piece and today it over a billion drinks a day that's correct 1.7 billion drinks a day and also at that time uh, in 1886 we only had one brand today the company has over 500 brands so. yeah that's what I, I found curious I was reading in the literature that there are um, you know over 500 brands but when you say brand what do you mean produced in different countries or what well sure you've you've got you know so we produce coke we produce sprite as well oh 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 the other soft drinks I see. sure yeah so sure, okay. all the different brands we produce gotcha all right well and you mentioned that it was five five cents a drink but it was also only sold. At a soda fountain, it was only dispensed in a soda fountain initially. That is correct. So in 1886, you could only get Coke on the soda fountain up until 1899. So the first time someone bottled Coke was in 1894. There was a gentleman in Mississippi named Joseph Biedenhorn. 
the demand for Coca-Cola at his fountain was so high that he decided that he was going to put them in bottles and sell them to everyone that was working up and down the Mississippi River. Hmm. So he was the first bottle of Coca-Cola, but in essence, that was just a one-off operation. It got really interesting in 1899. Um, two businessmen from Chattanooga, Tennessee, actually approached the president of Coca-Cola at the time, Asa Candler, to take uh, bottling large scale. Now, what you've got to realize is at the time, Coke was only sold on the fountain, so bottling was almost like a new concept. So Candler was a little skeptical about Coke and bottles. So what he decided to do was to sell the rights to bottle Coca-Cola to these two gentlemen and have them take on bottling. So they made the first bottling plant in uh, Chattanooga in 1899, and what they did was in contract with local individuals to create bottling plants in different regions all around the U.S. And that began basically what's our worldwide bottling system. Mm. I, I, you know, it's interesting because I remember as a, a child in a school field trip in the Midwest, the, Coca, the local Coca-Cola bottling plant was the first sort of like food factory um, field trip that I had ever seen. I First, the bottling plant was very interesting and it was the uh you know the first of its kind that i had ever seen certainly um and when you say uh asa candler made a deal with these guys to bottle it and what we didn't talk about was the money to be made in this industry asa candler bought the whole company for twenty three hundred dollars in 1891 right and then he sold it went for 25 million dollars Quite the investment. Whew, I don't even want to work on the percentages of that one. <laughs> that that is really something um, to have been that uh, that smart with your money. Oh, that was very right. good. Um, well, the bottling. It's inter- one one thing that I thought was very interesting is that the the Coke bottle, which of course is trademarked in its home, it didn't get trademarked until actually quite recently, right? I mean, did I say nineteen seventy seven? They actually received the trademark for that bottle. No, actually, the Contour bottle was uh, trademarked. It was developed in 1916, and just uh-huh. to give you the background on that, when it was originally bottled, they were all bottled in straight-sided bottles. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody, you know, there were many other companies out there that tried to imitate the product, so they were coming out with sim- similar bottles with similar-sounding names, so you had products like Coca-Nola or Sola-Cola that you'd see. <laughs> And so what we found out was that we needed a way to differentiate our product from all of these other products. And so we developed the Contour bottle Uh in 1916, which was patented in 1916. And it was a bottle that you could recognize in the dark. No one else could use it. And it actually became one of the most well-recognized packages in trade history. Oh, so I I thought it was much later that was actually uh, granted the registration as a trademark. Um, but um, but certainly it was around for a long time. Yeah, that bottle is. I mean, that is that's really something. And it um, it you could just get a silhouette, see a silhouette of it, and everyone would know what it was. Yeah, was- Absolutely. So, so Coca Cola. The phrase Coca Cola is actually the most well known phrase in the world, and you know that package is uh, one of the most well known packages in the world that's as well. Right. What about then the shortened name to Coke? Where did, how did that come about? Well, that came from the people, actually. Uh, the, the brand was so familiar with the people that they just shortened it 
to Coke. So if you went into a soda fountain instead of asking for Coca-Cola, you know, it's basically a friend of the people. So you call your friend by nickname, which mm-hmm. is just Coke. And it got to the point where even other companies and other beverages, when people would ask for those, they would ask for a Coke because, you know, what is a soft drink if it's not a Coke? So that actually came from the people and uh, we actually had advertising to say that Coca-Cola is Coke uh, in the uh, 1950s, just to reinforce that idea. Hmm, interesting. Well, the um, the fact that it's in over 200 countries in the world, that's pretty phenomenal. And is it so it's actually bottled in these companies, in these other countries as well? Absolutely. When you... Uh, go to, let's say you go to Morocco and you get a Coca-Cola. I think mm-hmm. the beautiful thing about our company is that it's not something that's only produced here in the U.S. and shipped out. You know, it creates a local business. So there's a local bottling plant that's using glass that's actually locally made. There's advertising that's locally made. The people who are actually making the money are the local bottlers who are from that country as well. So Coke is very global and very local at the same time. Well, it is certainly, you know, made an impact in um, business models as well as, um, you know, on the shelves of supermarkets as as being the the soft drink brand. Um, other companies might disagree. <laughs> and we don't mention those by name, right? <laughs> I, I, I read somewhere that that was the policy of the company, not to mention the number one name, and we won't even mention it, that it's considered chief competitor, but never by name. <laughs> well, there's, there's no disputing that we are the real thing. <laughs> um, the The... The extract, or what I want to call it, the not the syrup, but the concentrate. So the concentrate is that is made only in a few places, and then well, what I want to say is National Geographic did a wonderful piece on um, on the whole bottling process and the and the um, formation of the the formulas of Coke, not the formula itself, but how it's uh, sure. how it gets into the bottle, and from that, and I, I saw a snippet of that piece, and from that, I I did see that the concentrate is made and then shipped out and then the concentrate is then made into the syrup with the the um, high fructose corn syrup uh, and why is high fructose corn syrup used instead of um, straight sugar well I've, I've got to apologize Linda I'm not an expert in that part of our business oh, okay. I am an expert in the history though all right um, I mean the the National Geographic piece just mentioned that I mean obviously high Fructose corn syrup is cheaper. I mean, it's a it's a more economical way to make it, and other places do use sugar. But then they talked about you know then the final mixing of the water. What you know? So in other words, you think in these different bottling plants, what are the variables that could alter the taste of Coke? Because Coke, as you said, Coke is a Coke is a Coke, and no matter where you go, so um, a lot of time was spent in the on the water filtration processes, and that very, very interesting water filtration process to remove any, you know, you go from New York to Atlanta and the water can taste very different. So that sure. they, yeah, so the filtration process is is something that is obviously very important to the final product, right? Yeah, sure. Again, I'm not an expert on that, but uh I can definitely point back to, you know, the local source can, you know, all all the ingredients are on the can and you may find more information about that on our website. Uh, the coca-cola company.com okay well one of the major 
um, uh, factors in Coke's um, rise to fame and and longevity is certainly its advertising campaign. We're going to take a, a short musical break, and when we come back, I'd love to talk to you about the advertising campaigns. Sure. Okay. It's summer swinging with the Everly Brothers. Sitting in my lifeguard seat, out here in the sun and heat, watching that the little girls go drown. Radios are everywhere, the only song that I can hear is that little old song that's going around, saying, things be better with Coca-Cola, things be better with Coke. Someone get a Coke for me, baby. Things go better with Coke. So right now you can, if we had, I didn't bring my Coke and my bottle opener with me, but we'd have the sound effects of a, of a bottle cap being popped and the fizz of a Coke being poured in a glass and refreshing. But that there, right, the music you just heard is an, an example of part of the advertising campaign. And and that is something that Asa Candler, um, I think, well, and Pemberton himself, they realized from the beginning that you had to get out there and you had to tell the story, right? Absolutely. The you know, first newspaper ad was, you know, the first month the product was sold, it said delicious and refreshing. Hmm. Delicious and refreshing. And, and um, people, I mean, people who aren't um, in the world of collectibles, I'm sure still would understand because they'll see them at, you know, antique shops and flea markets. The the products that went along with the Coke and the advertising, the sales are always highly sought after. Um, absolutely, absolutely. You what know, were some of the most popular um, items in the campaigns, uh, as far as the physical items that were produced? Sure. Well, in the early days, uh, you know, our president Asa Candler was really a marketing genius, and what he did was he put the name Coca Cola on everything that people would use in their daily lives, and he'd give them away for free. So you had pocket mirrors with Coca-Cola on them. You had, you know, pocket knives. You had watches. You had clocks. You had calendars. You know, all of these materials would be things that people would use in their home or things if you went into a sort of fountain outlet you'd see on the wall. These things that we just produce for our advertising have just come to be collectibles over time. So there's even... An international Coca-Cola collectors club who collects a lot of these pieces, but just <laughs> calendars, trays, you name it. Coke's name was on it. What it was some of this, um, these toys and and usable items and ephemera. What it, do you happen to know any 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 figures on the most valuable resale value of, of any of these things? Well, sure. The the first tray that we produced was in 1897. Uh, very rare. I only know myself of two people in the country who actually have this. That tray would sell for $30,000. Wow. $30,000. $30,000. And the tray was just a, a tip tray. If you went in the soda fountain, you'd pay your money, you get your change in the tray, or you could leave a tip for huh. the fountain operator in the tray. Wow. So if you're out there and you find some of these uh, old Coca-Cola items, hold on to them. <laughs> yeah. Also, and, and if you remember a few months back, is actually a, a piece that Andy Warhol made, uh, sold for $34 million, I believe, on auction. It wow. was just a Coca-Cola piece. It just had a Coke bottle mm-hmm. with the Coke logo, mm-hmm. and that just speaks to the power of the brand. Well, and that's interesting. The logo itself became 
so recognizable. And that was somebody from really early on who uh, who penned that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That was uh, John Pemberton's bookkeeper, Frank Robinson. And that logo that you're actually looking at nowadays, even 125 years later, is Frank Robinson's own handwriting. So he had nice he, handwriting, and he enlisted him to, to write it out. <laughs> exactly, and beautiful script. Oh, that's, I mean, that's phenomenal that it stuck around that long. I mean, they tried to change, obviously, over the years, but the, you know, the traditional, the traditional uh, look held true. You know, there is, a, at the opening of the show, I talked a little bit about the um, controversy on these new energy drinks um, that's going on, the high-caffeine drinks, the Red Bull and, and, and things like that, Nose, and some of these um, drinks that... Uh, you know that are coming under fire, and Coke was no stranger to to controversy over the past as well. Correct? Yeah, sure. We've we faced, as as you could imagine, over 125 years, uh, everything, and we're still here, and we're still growing. Yeah. Well, I mean, people can say, well, it's it's a soft drink and it's a soda and we don't you know like to push it we don't like our kids to drink soft drinks and certainly you don't i mean calorie wise or or occasionally it's a great it's a great treat and um and it's not going anywhere because it's part of our part of our uh, culture as yeah. i said it was an american icon and the slogans and the songs as we heard we heard it's the real thing um i want to buy the world a coke i want to teach the world to sing uh, things go better with Coke. What is there anything else that comes to your mind that was one of the more popular advertising slogans? Oh, you said refreshing and something. Sure, yeah, delicious and refreshing. Delicious but, and refreshing. You know, the one of the more classic pieces that a lot of your listeners probably do remember uh, from 1971. We had a commercial. Uh, it's actually 40 years old this year. The famous Hilltop commercial, uh, which featured you know young people from all around the world singing together on the hillside, uh, that was so popular as a television commercial that consumers would actually call in the radio stations to hear that song. And so <laughs> what we ended up doing was creating a single out of it and released it, and it was actually a top ten hit. And you know that came out in 1971. It was a time of war and a lot of things going on in right. the world, and it just said, let's have a Coke is basically a way to say, let's keep each other company for a while. Yeah, well, and that's true. I mean, the Coke in, well, way back in World War II is also, I mean, Coke was, that was a piece of home for a lot of the, uh, the servicemen. If they, Absolutely. If they and got I'd, a Coke, that, was, that was, made them feel closer to home. Absolutely. Our chairman at the time actually made it a point to say that regardless of where our soldiers were in the world, they could still get a Coke for a nickel, regardless of where they were. So we set up bottling plants wherever they were. Any soldier could get a Coke for a nickel. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Well, the, so despite the court cases, I mean, there were you know accusations of too much cocaine from the cola nut, which, then, of course, was uh, found to be only trace amounts and, and, uh, and then probably now completely gone. Um, and then too much caffeine, although we're not sure how much caffeine is still in it. But um, it, it still, I mean, it is the formula and the of the flavors. Would could you say? Does the company say it's all natural flavors, or is that not said as well? Yeah, it's 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 all natural. You know, it just goes to show the importance of the brand over time. You know, all the many things that have come up, but if if you look on the side of your package, it has 
you know, all the ingredients, natural flavors is definitely one of them. Natural flavors. And that's the secret formula, and I can't get it out of you. It's just <laughs> natural flavors. <laughs> yeah, you could try, but no one's cracked the code yet. Uh, well, I have read a lot of different um, people's ideas of what, you know, they might be from the, you know, well, the caramels listed, but, you know, from lime juices to, you know, extracts of this and that and, and different spices and... Um, I'm sure plenty of people have played around with the formula, trying to, trying to reproduce it. But obviously, no one has come close enough. And mm. and my my lips are sealed. <laughs> well, Jamal, <laughs> thank you so much. You've you've shared a lot of information with us. Darn, I couldn't get it out of you. But uh, <laughs> they, the Coca Cola has a, a quite a company there, and um, it. It is an interesting process to see, and certainly, uh, uh, as I said, a, a very impressive business model as well. And it's something that everyone, I'm sure, has enjoyed at one time or another in their lives. And, you know, like it or not, with the caffeine and all the sugar, it is refreshing, and it's delicious. Uh, and I thank you so much for sharing the background and history with me on my show. All right, thank, thank you for being, thank you for having us. Okay. This is Linda Palaccio, and it's been a taste of the past, celebrating 125 years of America's favorite drink. Whole Foods Market celebrates Earth Month with the Do Something Real Film Festival, a collection of six provocative character-driven films focused on food, environmental issues, and everyday people with a greater vision. Come see one of the six features at City Cinemas Village East from Saturday, April 16th through Thursday, April 21st, every night at 6 p.m. Learn more about the films and special events at www.dosomethingreal.com. That's www.dosomethingreal.com. Sponsored by Whole Foods Market. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. The Snacky Tunes compilation has arrived and is available for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com. This compilation features live performances from some of the hottest acts around today, including Midnight Magic, Surfer Blood, Overhoffer, and more. Again, you can download this compilation for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com, and make sure to listen to Snacky Tunes every Monday at 2 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. 